Okay, so we're continuing in our series. We're looking at the beginnings of the church, and we've got two more sermons left in this series before we jump into the season of Advent, which is crazy. Um, I've really been enjoying walking through these passages of Scripture, looking at what the early church did in the book of Acts. That's where we started, right? And now we've been walking through some of the earliest instructions to those churches in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so we're in the book of Ephesians again, chapter 4, starting verse 7. And last week we covered the first six verses of this chapter, and we talked about how the church is one. Right, the unity of the church, how that's an invisible reality, invisible and indestructible reality bought by Christ's work on the cross for us. Right? He has made us one with him. He's made us one with each other. But we also recognized that that invisible truth doesn't always translate into a visible and tangible reality. Right? We're not always living as one. We see that. The world definitely sees that. For some reason, even though this is an invisible, indestructible reality, it's not always a visible, intangible reality. And Paul urges the church in this chapter to make every effort to keep the unity. And so unity is given, and unity is something we must keep. We gave the analogy of a family, right? How a family is still a family, right? Even if they're not together, even if they're separated, even if there are fights and, and grudges, right? They're still a family. They might be a disintegrated family, but they're still a family. That is a reality. But they might not be living into that reality, being a family of peace and a family of connection, right? And that's sometimes how the church is. Right? And, and in these next verses, Paul gets more into the particulars. He starts talking about the people who make up this one body of Christ, the church. So he goes from talking about the body of believers as a whole, right? what we talked about last week. He goes from that to looking at how it's made up of each one of us. So there's diversity even in this unity. Right? There's a saying, uh, unity doesn't always mean uniformity. Right? Just because we're one doesn't mean we're all exactly the same. And that's true for the church. Right? The church is diverse. We have the spectrum of personalities, nationalities, you name whatever it might be. But the church is also diverse in how people are gifted by God to serve. That's part of the diversity of the church. And Paul goes into that in this passage. So let's look again at verse 7. He says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each person has been given this grace. And, and when Paul's talking about this grace in terms of gifts, right, or spiritual gifts as we call them, it's helpful to look at this not as saving grace, right? We talk about that a lot, how we're saved by God's grace. The grace that saves us, right, is given to everybody who believes in Jesus. But in addition to that particular grace comes this serving grace, as theologians might call it, right? Serving grace. Everyone in the church has been given this serving grace, these gifts to be able to serve one another in a spiritual way, 
And Paul doesn't give his longest list of spiritual gifts in this passage, so we're not going to fully dive into every spiritual gift and talk about that. We will eventually one day, but that's not this passage. If you do want to take a look at those, you can write this in your journal or earmark 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 in your Bible. You'll find longer lists of spiritual gifts there. The main idea here is that these gifts are given by Christ. This is what Paul writes in verse 8 when he says, Jesus gave gifts to people when he ascended. And Paul finds a way to work in the gospel uh, that obviously before Jesus ascended into heaven, right, he had to descend from heaven to earth, to the lower parts of earth, he says. And in that, you have the gospel encapsulated that Jesus is God who took on flesh and descended to earth to be among us, that he died, right, and then he was raised and ascended to the heavens, Paul says in verse 9, to fill all things, right? That he starts, uh, he, then he starts to list off these gifts, right, that he's given to the church. Verse 11 says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He lists these five gifts and what's maybe surprising and unexpected is that he doesn't list individual gifts that people receive in themselves, right? He doesn't say he gave some people the gift of this. He gave some people the gift of that, right? He does that in other passages, like the ones that I talked about earlier. But in this case, he's talking about people, right? Five gifts to the church that come in the form of people serving in diverse ways, right? apostles. He gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets. He gave some to be evangelists, and he gave some to be pastors and teachers. These are gifts to the church, right? Notice how he doesn't say he gave some people the gift of being apostles. He gave some people the, being the, the gift of being prophets. No, he gave some to be those things in the church. Those are gifts to the church, right? He gave some to be apostles, for the church. If we want to know how the early church was built up, looking at this list will really help us understand. Right? Paul has mentioned apostles in this letter already. We didn't read this passage in our series, but in verse 2 he talks about apostles. He introduces him I mean in chapter 2 he talks about apostles. In chapter 1 he introduces himself as an apostle right at the beginning of this letter. Right In chapter 2, what I was just talking about, he talks about how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Chapter 3, he talks about how the mystery of Christ was revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. And now apostles and prophets, they're listed as these gifts that Jesus has given the church. And one way that they were a gift to the church is that they served as the foundation of the church. Apostles and prophets served as the foundation of the church. They're the reason the church exists today. Jesus built the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These are the authors of Scripture. And there are lots of different ways to think about apostles, right? The word just means sent one, right? And in some sense, all Christians are sent to share the good news, 
right? There were also those apostles of the churches who got sent out by the church, right? There were apostles who, like the church, sent out as missionaries, right? But then there was this class of apostle called the Apostles of Christ. And these were the original 12 disciples, right, minus Judas, with a couple additions like Paul and Matthias, right? We often call these the big A apostles, the big A apostles, right? And, and every one of them had to have seen the risen Christ to go on and be a witness, an eyewitness. And based on how Paul has been using the term in this letter, he seems to be talking about these big A apostles who, with the prophets, are the foundation of the church. And in that sense, there is no one today who can replicate that gift to the church, especially with that level of authority, right? The apostles were the writers of scripture. They were as if God was speaking. That's how the prophets were as well, similar to the apostles, right? And so Paul has been mentioning, and he's mentioned these prophets as the foundation of the church too. Um, in chapter two, he talks about that as well. Now listen to what the theologian John Stott writes about this, because I want to talk about this idea of prophets, because I know there might be some confusion, like are there prophets in the church today and people who have the gift of prophecy and all that kind of thing. He says this about the prophets that Paul is talking about in this letter specifically. In the primary sense in which the Bible uses the word, a prophet was a person who stood in the counsel of God, who heard and even saw his word, and who in consequence spoke from the mouth of the Lord and spoke his word faithfully. In other words, a prophet was a mouthpiece or a spokesman of God, a vehicle of his direct revelation. Nobody can presume to claim an inspiration comparable to that of the canonical prophets. Canonical just means the prophets in the Bible, uh, the ones who were writing Scripture and are recorded as the voice of God in Scripture. Right? No one can presume to claim an inspiration comparable to them and say, thus says the Lord. Right? If this were possible, we would have to add their words to Scripture, and the whole church would need to listen and obey. As the foundation on which the church is being built, the prophets have no successors any more than the apostles have, for the foundation was laid and finished centuries ago. We cannot tamper with it in any way today. I think that's a healthy way to look at the prophets as they're explained in the book of Ephesians. This is, there's an, this is an important distinction to make, right? The early church had these prophets. And even before the church, you can find prophets in the Old Testament. But these were not people, these were not people who say something like, I sense the Lord telling me, or I just have the impression that, you know, these were people saying, this is what the Lord says, and you better listen. That, those were the prophets, right? They said it with 100% certainty, and their listeners were 100% accountable for obeying those words as if they were the very words of God. And so it's important that as we think about that, is there somebody in our church today who has that kind of authority? No. There is not somebody in our church today who has that kind of authority that they can just pronounce something and we're all supposed to obey them as if it's the very words of God, new information, and God's going to hold us accountable for disobeying them. 
We can even just talk about our church or any church, but it's just more rhetorical, right? Yeah, now this is a role we, we just don't have in our church today, right? It's a critical gift that God gave the church, and it, its benefits are all over the Bible, right? But Scripture is not being written as modern-day prophets are speaking, right? And I, I'm not saying that God can't still give people supernatural insight or even sometimes visions and things like that. We hear about things like that. I do think they're rare, because people and people do tend to abuse these things. Uh, I tend to be wary and will always have my Bible open and ready to confirm or deny what somebody's saying. But even in that case, these are not the prophets who are the foundation of the church that Paul's talking about, right? These foundational gifts to the church. It's not a coincidence, right, that many prophets. Uh, like those who have come after the Bible or after the apostles. It's not a coincidence that many prophets have started new religions that depart from Christianity's teachings, right? That piggyback off of Christianity, and then you have these new religions that have sprouted out because of modern-day prophets that people listened to and believed. It was a thus saith the Lord kind of moment, and now we have different books that have been written and all sorts of things that have departed from Orthodox Christianity. So that's important to note. The next gift mentioned are evangelists. And these are those who uh, proclaim the good news, right? Evangelism is proclaiming the good news. These are people who communicate the gospel to others. It could be proclaiming and preaching. It could be helping to make the leap of trust and in, in, in having faith in Christ. Right? Basically, someone who is just walking good news to others. Next, we see that Christ gave pastors and teachers. These are gifts to the church, or shepherds and teachers, as some translations say. And just like the like apostle and prophet, these have overlap with one another. Shepherd, teacher. Right? So, so shepherds and teachers, they kind of have this overlap. Uh, and in some way, you could argue that teaching is involved in all of these ministries, right, that Paul mentions. But Jesus gave shepherds, pastors, people to tend the flock of God, to, to look out for the spiritual welfare of God's people, to help them follow Jesus, right? to correct, to lead, to care for. And then there are teachers, right? Those who convey knowledge to others. I'm teaching today, right? But it's not only pastors who teach, right? It's not even only pastors who shepherd in the church. The teachers of the church help people to understand the things of God. God has given them insight. He's given them ability to teach, and so Christ gives the gifts, right? And these gifts are diverse uh, in these minister, diverse in these ministers, right, to the early church. Uh, and the purpose they serve is, in fact, to serve, right? The purpose these gifts serve is so that we would be serving, right? And these are the servants of the early church. These gifts are to serve the church. In particular, Paul says in verse 12, they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. And this is important 
While we might argue that each of the gifts mentioned has a leadership quality to it, it's not intended that ministry is carried out only by these five types of people. Right? No, the church is even more diverse than these five types of people. Paul tells them these gifts should equip the saints. Right? They're not ends in and of themselves. They should be equipping people to carry out ministry. And if you're not familiar, a saint in the Bible is just any Christian, right? Not just the special Christians who do special things, but everyone is a saint uh, who believes in Jesus. It means holy one, right? Christ makes us holy, holy one in Christ, right? That's a saint. And everyone is called to ministry, right? The job of leadership is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's to equip the saints to serve, to equip the saints to build up the church. Why? Right? Paul says in verse 13, we're to do this until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will be, no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. That unity that we've been talking about, it seems to come when the church builds one another up in love. And there's a protective aspect to it, right? Our faith gets sturdier. Paul finishes this little section by saying this, but speaking the truth in love, verse 15, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Like the body needs to grow into the head, which is a weird picture if you think on it too long. But Christ is forming the church into his image. Right? And when we mature, we start to look like him, not just as an individual, but as a body of believers. And when we everyday people of the church take seriously that we're called to ministry and we build one another up, that's what starts to happen. Right? The proper working of each individual part, speaking the truth in love. So I just want to talk about how the gospel plays into all of these things before we say goodbye. Um, you know, it's just amazing that even in the times when we're called to work, and I think this relates to what some of you were talking about, whether we're called to work, to ministry, to service, when we're encouraged by the word that our actions affect unity for better or for worse, right? That God has allowed us to have such an influence, right? But even then, you read something like verse 16, talking about Christ saying, from him, from him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Look at the beginning of that sentence. From him. Right? Two words. They're so easy to miss, right? We could think about all the things that we have to do, all the things that we have to muster up, all the, you know, ways that we need to be expending ourselves. And then this starts from him, right? It's all from him. 
We can't do this on our own, right? And even better, we're not expected to do it on our own. It's all from the one who descended to us to save us, to bring us to God, to bring us into the fold of God's family, only to ascend and still give us grace upon grace. The service that we're doing in the church, for the church, for one another, loving one another, that's supposed to feel like grace, right? It's not supposed to feel like guilt. John uses that term in his gospel, uh, the gospel of John, as Don was telling us about. John uses that term grace upon grace, grace upon grace, that Jesus came to give us grace upon grace, Christ has made us one, but he's also empowered us to be his body, to be his hands and feet on earth. And the good news is, of course, grace for sinners, right, for salvation. The Son of God descended to earth. He lived the perfect and sinless life. He died in our place. Some of you know the story, right? He paid the penalty for our sin to make us right with God. But when those sinners become saints... The grace doesn't stop flowing, right? Grace upon grace, grace for salvation and grace for serving. And the servants of the church themselves are called gifts from Jesus. The church is one and we're called to keep the unity. And Paul gives us one way that that happens. God has provided servants who built a foundation and servants to shepherd and teach the church. And he's provided a slew of other people who have so many other gifts, right? So that the whole church can serve and mature and image Christ to the world, right? And we're not going to do that perfectly, But even in our imperfection, we can see the contrast between us and the Lord. And if we're honest about it, we can show people that contrast too, right? We can make that be more evidence of our need for God's grace, our humility, right? We need pastors and teachers, but we also need the people of God equipped and set free to serve one another with the gifts that Jesus has given them. And when we get to that place, Paul says, we are rowing the boat toward maturity together, toward unity, toward Jesus himself. This is not something that we're going to see perfectly achieved in our lifetime on this side of heaven, right? It is sort of rowing the boat together and using the gifts that we have going toward Jesus together and praying, God, may we look more like you, not just as an individual, but as a people and the way that we love one another. People should be able to walk in and at least see some of Jesus among us.